I have an aunt who is a historian. My more devoted listeners may have noticed that she, like many people in my life, has been a source of inspiration for my writing. Her career requires that she be a skeptic to an admirable degree. When someone thinks their house is haunted, the first person they turn to is the local historian. But historians have to deal in facts. Why would a ghost make a light bulb bleed? I remember my aunt asking while driving my cousins and I somewhere, probably a children's museum or Chuck E. Cheese's. Why not leave a detailed note with names and birth dates, or an explanation of how they died? She had a point. Skepticism is important. It keeps the focus on the facts, but it also emphasizes when things really don't make much sense. The testimonies of paranormal phenomena that I find myself believing the most are the ones that come from self-proclaimed skeptics, admitting when they experience something they can't explain. Here's something I can't explain. During my senior year of high school, my friend and I decided to give a Ouija board a try. Our reasons for doing so evade me, but it is the type of thing we would have done. My friend, who I'll christen with the alias Annie for reasons that will become apparent, purchased a glow-in-the-dark Hasbro spirit board from Toys R Us. We set it up on my bedroom floor, lit some candles, and recruited my two brothers. It began like most horror movies, with four teenagers who can't take anything seriously and who can't make it five seconds without breaking the already thin atmosphere with inappropriate jokes. It wasn't until my brothers took off to find a better use of their time, and Annie and I were alone, that things really started to happen. That was when someone started to communicate with us via plastic and cardboard, naming names, giving dates and explaining how she died. My first skeptic's disclaimer is that I was not able to verify any of these details with my feeble internet searches, and some of them are absurd enough to be made up. Some of the details are downright theatrical. Annie was insistent at the time that this was not her fabrication. She was, and probably still is, an exciting, creative, theatrical person. A lamp that attracts moths. That being said, it wasn't like her to leave me on the other side of the fourth wall. Not only did I trust her, but this didn't strike me as the type of thing she'd make up. If anything, it seemed like something I would have made up. In conclusion, I can explain it away as a friend's elaborate and deceptive means of seeking attention, but I don't like to. What I cannot explain is how it feels to have a planchette move with complete independence and conviction under your fingertip, and to know that your friend sitting across from you is equally baffled. To this day, I believe that planchette was powered by vindication. The first question that seemed to get a response was, Are you offended? Trembling and making a soft screeching sound as it moved across the board, the planchette shifted to the smiling sun. Yes, they were offended. It was this mic drop of a declaration that set the tone for the rest of the conversation, because from that point on, Annie and I had to take this seriously. Do we offend you? 
the planchette inched its way to the frowning moon. No. Who is offending you? It spelled a name. J-E-R-E-D. Who is Jared? Husband, she spelled. Then came an influx of information. She gave us her name. It was Leona. She gave us her twin sister's name, Winnie. This is what I mean when I say some details are absurd enough to be made up. Twins named Leona and Winona. She didn't stop there. She gave us the place she was from, North Carolina. She gave us the year she died, 1835. The more she told us, the more strength she seemed to gain. Annie and I would gasp as the planchette practically dragged our fingers across the board, from one letter to another, one number to the next, the affirming sun, the denying moon. I could feel her heart break. It wasn't as if the room went cold, the candles blew out, clouds obscured the full moon, and we heard her ghostly voice ring out. It was in her words. Everything was presented with such painful honesty, as if she couldn't wait to get it all off her chest. Leona's husband, Jared, was having an affair with her twin sister, Winnie. He hired men to murder Leona. They beat and stabbed her. Leona was pregnant with Jared's child when she died. You may be torn between believing this story and wondering which soap opera it was stolen from. There's been a lot of talk lately about believing women when they say they've experienced something horrible. Most women have so much to lose in telling their story, and only one thing to gain, justice for the next woman. Leona's story was horrible enough to make anyone want to believe it was a melodramatic figment of a writing team's imagination, safely tucked away behind a TV screen. But just as it could be fiction, there's nothing stopping it from being truth. What I cannot explain is what Leona could have possibly gained from telling us her story, other than catharsis and justice for the next woman. Why did you choose to speak to us? we asked. I'm afraid, she replied. What are you afraid of? we asked. Jared, she replied. It took Annie and I a moment to process this. We didn't like the implications of how present Leona's fear still was. Her story was from 1835. Jared was long dead by now, but if this conversation had showed us anything, it was that the dead didn't necessarily stay quiet. Is Jared coming back? we asked. She then proceeded to spell a different name, a name all too familiar to Annie and I. Annie's hands flew up from the planchette, into the air landing nervously on her head, as she realized Leona was spelling the name of her stepfather. Nope, I'm done, she declared. I don't want to do this anymore. A detail I will now reveal is that Annie's mother was in the throes of a traumatic 
divorce during the time that we chose to communicate with the dead. Perhaps that was what motivated Annie to try the Ouija board in the first place. Perhaps she was looking for a larger understanding of how the universe works while witnessing her own smaller universe at war, her mother in pain, her floor ripped out from under her. In fairness, her universe had been at war for a while. Annie's stepfather, now thankfully ex-stepfather, was the type of person who could change right in front of you. I'd seen him switch from charismatic youth group chaperone to cold, patriarchal disciplinarian. His ability to rapidly change masks begged the question of what really lay underneath. The answer was a broken, sadistic creature. A chilling incident that repeatedly comes to mind as the perfect example of this man's nature was one day when Annie's mother fell down the stairs. As she lay there, crying in pain, her husband sat only feet away in the kitchen, ignoring her. When most humans witness a complete stranger topple down a set of stairs, they instinctively rush in to provide aid, or at least check to see if the stranger is okay. What I can't explain is how this man couldn't even be bothered to hear his own wife's pain. Then again... Perhaps he did hear it. Perhaps he enjoyed it. It wouldn't have been a first for him. This incident was an example of inaction, but there were plenty of other instances when he did more and he did worse. Annie wanted this all to end the moment her stepfather's name showed up on that spirit board, but I pushed back. I thought it would be rude to end the conversation so suddenly. Leona had made the effort to say these things. We should at least make sure we understood her. Are you trying to warn us? The planchette found the sun and the word yes. Is there anything else you want to say? The planchette found the moon and the word no. We thanked her, and we said our goodbyes. Candles were blown out with overwhelmed exhales. Downstairs, dinner was getting cold, and the rest of my family was becoming peeved that we'd taken so long to join them. Compared to what Annie was going through, I was lucky that my biggest problem in that moment was a supportive family who would give me flack for being late to dinner. Nonetheless... I checked closets and slept with lights on for weeks after that, expecting Annie's stepfather to be around every corner. Even saying this, I don't like having the rest of the room behind me. A common trope in horror movies is the demonic, non-human presence that manages to find its way into an unsuspecting home or person possessing a space with evil. What has always frightened me more is how perfectly capable humans are of committing evil acts without some satanic demon scapegoat. Throughout all the abuse he inflicted on his family, Annie's stepfather considered himself a Christian. He still does. At the time, I think Annie and I both interpreted Leona's words as a declaration of Jared's reincarnation via her stepfather. Looking back, I'm not sure she was being that specific. 
I think Leona zeroed in on the evil presence in Annie's life because it reminded her of the evil presence that had ended hers. Like the lady in the supermarket who notices you've got a creep who won't leave you alone and steps in to pretend she's your domineering mother, whisking you away from the sickening comments about your body, Leona was watching our backs. Annie and I drifted apart the natural way that some friends tend to do in the years following high school. There was no fight or falling out. Just two people who realized themselves and, in doing so, realized they were very different people. I'm sure if she heard this rendering of the story, she'd have her own insights and versions of events. She could probably point out inaccuracies that my memory has hallucinated into truths. After all... The story is so much more about her than it ever was about me. Fun as it would be to imagine myself as a conduit for conversations with the dead, I'm certain Leona was there to talk to Annie. I was just another set of fingers and another mind willing to believe. I don't need to explain why I'm afraid to tell this story. Like many women... I've weighed both the spiritual and tangible consequences of making my experience available to the public. I've thought about who might hear it, the survivors of trauma I know and the ones I don't know. I've thought about the possibility of Jared hearing it, if he ever existed. I've thought about the possibility of Annie's stepfather hearing it. I know he exists. Lastly, I've thought about the possibility of Leona hearing it. Let me clarify. I don't care if Leona was real or not. I don't care that she met all the criteria my historian aunt would require, names, dates, places, and yet I still couldn't verify anything. I don't care if her story was just a story. It is still a truth. What I can't explain is why this type of fear has to exist in the first place. Why men like Jared, Annie's stepfather, the creep in the supermarket, and the senior employee in the office who stands too close to you continue to do whatever they want at Leona's expense, Annie's expense, a stranger's expense, my expense. So I'm telling this story to make one thing very clear. I've been told that when a woman is walking somewhere alone and she senses she's being followed, she's supposed to turn around and make eye contact with the potential assailant. Sometimes that's enough to make someone with ill intentions balk. Meeting their eyes sends a simple, clear message. I see you. I know what you're planning. I'm ready to fight you if I have to. (laughs) 